Hello, and welcome to another in our series of podcasts, uh, Conversations with Sound Artists. And today, we are going to be discussing creative sound design for documentaries. This is Glenn Kaiser, director of the Dolby Institute, and this podcast collection is a co-production between the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. And uh, really uh, happy to be talking today with uh, Carl Anderson, who is a fantastic uh, supervising sound editor and sound mixer. And his credits include lots of independent narrative films and documentaries that you've seen, including Martha Marcy May Marlene, the amazing movie Catfish, Restrepro and Fog of War, and most recently he uh, collaborated with director Andrew Jerecki for the HBO series The Jinx. So we are coming to you today from Bearsville, New York, which is an adorable little hamlet in upstate New York, not too far away from Woodstock. So welcome to the show, and uh, let's get started. So one of the cool things about your career, call is that you actually work in both narrative and documentary, which isn't uh, you know always the case. My love of film came into documentary when I discovered, you know, when somebody handed me that Nagra, when when somebody showed me what was capable in creation and film, when somebody showed me the art form, and I was shown, you know, I had no idea what it was. When I learned about it, I learned about uh, it from the point of view of visual environmental studies at, at Harvard. I learned about documentary filmmaking, and I fell in love with that mostly because it was introduced to me first, but I think also because there's something about trying to tell human stories that I love most. Verisimilitude, the seamless integration with real life, is, you know, and, and verite, looking at, you know, trying to uninvolve and look at real life is one of those things that I f- completely fell in love with. And through that, I learned about, you know, fiction, narrative fiction storytelling. But I always sort of end up going back to what I would consider, I don't want to say my roots, like I'm this old guy, but but I go back to my original love, which is telling stories about people, telling stories about people in time and space. Because I think that that, it always gets me going. But I, I get verklempt. I mean, I'm, I got goosebumps talking about it because I, you know, I remember the first people who I started making films about and how interesting their lives were in terms of watching them live. I don't think we actually take enough time in our lives in this day and age to look at not just ourselves, because we all are sort of that way. We sort of imagine ourselves and, you know, everything we do. But in terms of quietly watching how other people live and the stories that come from that. And that led me to fiction filmmaking. But I always sort of keep that with me. So uh, from a sound approach, is it different working on fiction films from documentaries? Do you take a different approach when you, when you come to a project? When I approach a, a, a documentary film and a fiction film from a sound perspective, what I try and look at first is story. Instead of you know trying to set up rules that, that sort of define the way I interact with the story, I often try and leave myself open to what the story is asking, what the film is asking for. Because I think most editors, picture editors who do a, a good job and directors who do a good job, they actually build a, an, an environment that tells you what to do. 
If you're true to the to what the film is doing, it, it'll sort of give you instructions. And there doesn't need to be a set of rules that affect documentary versus feature. There's a certain level of, there used to be a certain level of um, verisimilitude, uh, uh, reality, is this reality, is this real? That we all sort of ad aspired, adhered to in terms of documentary films. And then as Errol Morris sort of started to create reenactments and 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 started to visualize what people were talking about or visualize what people were imagining there became room in documentary films because now that is used commonly there became room in documentary films to interpret creatively those moments like am I here I am a character and I'm relating something and if we visually tell the story of what I'm relating how do I imagine that sounds and that's given documentary a much wider berth of sort of creativity to play with. But with that in mind, I don't find that I constrain myself by the documentary has to be this way and fiction has to be that way. What I find is story tells me what has to be. And if I'm open to it, I can usually find that. So one of the things you said earlier, you used a couple of words. Um verite and verisimilitude uh and and i think that's that's really an interesting approach to trying to get to the truth of a certain matter and, and i think there's you know there might be a school of thought that you know putting sound design or or creating you know sounds after the fact to put on a film would be kind of fighting against that concept but one of the things that i i have heard you talk about before that i think is fascinating is that is that through the creative use of sounds that sometimes you can actually get to a deeper truth for the characters and what they're going through. So uh, could you talk a little bit about that and, and explain what that concept means? So there is, in, in, the, in terms of making documentary film, and not just in sound and, and image, the actual event of assembling story, we often wonder, is documentary film real? Is film real when we turn a camera on? And there is some sort of, to, to me, there is some sort of understanding that if I am filming, I'm now creating a, a divergent line from, from what is true. I'm actually affecting this, this line. And by now editing images, putting things together in time, I'm also creating now not just one divergent branch, but I'm creating a tree. There are many, many, many branches. At which Point, I sort of start to think in story, how do we bring that back into focus? How do we bring that back into the sort of truth that was the person who drove us to film him, her? The story that drove us to be so interested in it that we, we filmed it. So I find that for me, sometimes actually creating sound, sometimes making new sounds, sometimes finding deeper understandings of sound and subconscious interpretations of sound, designed sounds, sounds that maybe aren't as simple as a door close or, or a person's voice, but maybe, you, you know, hearing, hearing sounds out of context, hearing train whistles in the distance, all of a sudden that train whistle in the distance lends us to a singular understanding of loneliness that wasn't there at the time that we filmed, but when we have discovered that this is what this person is about, and these are what these edited images together are, all of a sudden that train whistle means what that person really is. Now, can we simplify that into black and white? Oh, this is nice and we can put it in a little package and tie a bow on top. No, people aren't that simple. 
truths aren't that, truth is not that simple. Truth is many, 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 many shades of, of grays and colors and palettes. And that's where sort of sound becomes so fascinating because we can work with subconscious things that affect us, the viewer, and let us, the viewer, into the truth that we saw when we started filming in the first place. And that's, I'm something I've, you know, fallen in love with many times over. So as a storyteller, you know, using sound, you've got two major tools, you know, sound effects and sound design, and then you've got music. So I'm curious from your perspective, how do you decide which element should step forward at any given point? Um, and, and, and how do you balance those two? Again, I'm going to go back to the, you know, the discussion of, of you know, when a director and an editor have, have done their work to, to, to its completest end, to its most complete end, you, we know what to do because they've told us. They've given us great instruction. They've, they've let us in on, on that. But, but more so, I find, and, and it gets a little esoteric at this point, that, there's, that, that those moments are frequency. And I find that there are certain musical, there are certain frequencies that lend themselves to emotional content, and I can learn to design sound effects around those frequencies. And there are certain impacts that I don't want from music because they have too much emotion. They'll, 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 it'll be fake. It'll be, you know, it'll be overwhelming, saccharine, too, you know. Let me do that with sound effects. Let me use you know sound effects to make that happen. There's times when I can use sound to establish geography, space, actor connection to place, and music gives me act, actor connection to emotionality. And there's times when that emotionality is too much and I want to draw emotion from real things. That's gonna work better for character. Really what often happens best is the picture editor, director, composer, script, shooting. You know, I'm uh, working with one of my favorite directors, Antonio Campos, right now. They don't start shooting for another week. I already know their script. I've already talked to the production mixer about how we're handling technical issues. I already know who the composers, who we think the composers are going to be. We've already talked about emotional moments versus sound design moments, which one's going to lend itself to work better. We're already starting to explore these things. Yes, do we create a map? Sure. Do we create a plan? Sure. But the reason we create a plan is so we are comfortable leaving it. The reason we have a roadmap that we've talked, we've worked back and forth, we've had ideas, is so that we can now leave them behind and we're comfortable enough to do that. That there's trust involved. We trust the plan, we trust each other, and now we trust divorcing ourselves from it. And that's when it's that moments or those moments, those are the coolest things. So I'm curious about how far you will go in, in creating sound design and effects for a documentary? I mean, for instance, will you walk fully for a doc? When I make a, a documentary and when I talk about sound, when we talk about sound design in terms of documentary and where, how we can leave reality or how we can come back to reality or refocus reality, I'll take a documentary film and go as literally as far as I can in terms of creating what is honest to the story. Now, does that mean it's going to be honest to the moment? No, because in a documentary film, there's one microphone, such as the one over my head, and, and it can't hear my feet well. 
It can't hear me walk well. It can't hear me with my hands in my pockets, the change and things like that. It can't hear because it's pointed at me and it's trying to get me talking. It can't hear that it's raining outside. So those are things that I'm, hey, wait a sec, I want to, I want to expand this reality. I want to expand your, the viewer's connection to me. So I'm going to actually create footsteps. Are they different from what's there? Well, only in that I wasn't there. I, I got to redo them. Can I make rain outside? Yes. I can not only make rain, but I can make rain on a metal roof because I know that there's a barn in the field right outside and I can make that happen. Those are the things that I, is that true to the documentary? One could argue not. Is it true to the spirit of the story? Absolutely. And so I try and use that space as, I try and go out there as much as I possibly can to make the story instead of singular, multiple layers, multiple layers. As deep as I can make your connection to the truth of the story is what I'm going to try and do. And to some degree, that's, you know, how much a director wants me to or lets me. That's always involved. There's always like a, a, an ebb and a flow to the language of that particular film. So working within that ebb and flow, whatever I have to do. Because I enjoy I, that's That's the fun. That's the coolest. That's the best part is, <laughs> you know, how do we make this character? How do we make you, the audience, breathe? this character by adding the details. How do I make you look around the frame? How do I make you experience not just my talking head, but what can I do to expand the frame to make you, the viewer, look around the frame? Subconsciously sounds. I, you know, you'd be amazed a little bit of a bird tweet all of a sudden makes you accept that there's green behind me. Are those trees? Are those kids back there? You know, do cars drive by? Am I close to a street, not close to a street? Well, this microphone above me doesn't always hear that, but my ability to add that is street sounds adding danger, adding my impulsivity. Is my character impulsive? Am I unsure of myself? I mean, you know, we've talked about stories and, and, and how we connect to the street, how we connect to the walking. You know, some of, some of my best friend's films have utilized these things to make that connection to that character more tenuous, more dangerous. That's, is that true? Absolutely. Is that what this microphone heard? No. But sometimes we need to do that in terms of telling a story. And let's be fair, the art form is entertainment. To be fair, what puts people watching stories is the stories are interesting. And so to help them be what they are is, I think, fair to the art. So I think our listeners uh, would be interested in hearing about some, you know, some specific examples uh, of, of your work and, and documentary. I know you've done a lot of work with American Experience. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about the, uh, the Amish uh, piece that you did? I, um, as a supervising sound editor and a re-recording mixer, um, I've worked for American Experience over the years. Um, on many different episodes. <clears throat> I'd say, and I'm, I'll get the dates wrong, but several years ago, you know, four or five years ago, um, I did a piece uh, uh, about the Amish. Now, I've done two of them, uh, both for American Experience, and they've both been phenomenally interesting in that they not only got access to a culture that is very hard to get access to and to, to film, 
but also a, a culture that's very private. So it's really hard to tell stories about a culture that that draws its its sense of communication and prayers, its sense of divinity through work, through literally putting your time in working on the on the planet. Their sense of religious connection comes from simplicity, comes from focused labor. Now, of course I can't speak for, for the Amish because it's infinitely more complicated than that. But that aspect of it from a sound perspective is something that the show gave us a lot of opportunity to explore. When you look at the communities, they've removed themselves from, and, and not in a good way or a bad way, they've removed themselves from the popular culture by creating a, an environment where they're totally self-reliant. Well, often that self-reliant, as a specific example, involves generating their own electricity. Are they off the grid? No. What they want to do is be responsible for their own electricity. And, and, and true, my understandings of this, and so there's a little bit of latitude into how I describe this. One of the experiences we had in the Amish, and one of the examples is, you know, here we are looking at a, a, a sort of quiet, bucolic space that involves quiet introspection. Well, it's very hard to communicate quiet introspection when there is a 5,000 watt generator running off of propane that's 20 feet from the camera. So for us to look at the story in that, and for us to look at this clip, it was a lot easier for us to recreate an environment that communicated quiet introspection, where we recreated a lot of the sounds that you hear. Shoveling snow, the sound of snow falling, train in the distance, people walking, dog barking from distance. It was much easier for us to control that and communicate that sort of quiet introspection than to try and deal with 5,000 watt generator tearing away. Does that take away from the work that they're doing? No, in fact, now you can sort of understand that sort of internalized sense of quiet work, which is what we, the story we wanted to tell. This is personal, personal introspection and, and, and moments that we could create sounds for that let you look all around the frame. Right, so, I mean, obviously the, you know, the Amish have this reputation as a very contemplative, quiet, maybe even meditative, people. So I'm really curious about, you know, what's their relationship with that constant presence of the generator sound? Do they, do they literally just not hear it anymore? My argument would be that if you're in the realm of, and again, you know, it's hard for me to, to talk about specifically for them because I, I, I'm not Amish. I don't want to put myself, I don't want to presume, I don't want to presume to speak for someone else. But my understanding is, from my involvement and what I know from a child and, 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 growing, and, and going through Western Pennsylvania many, 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 outside in Lancaster many, many times, that, the, that for them, that generator doesn't exactly f come into their conscious day-to-day -day activity. Do they know they have to put gas in it? Yes. Do they know that's running to create electricity? Yes. Is it something that they hear in the in the in the most superficial of environments? Yes. Is it something that they hear here? 
I, I would make the argument for no. I would make the argument for no, that's actually not something that they hear. That, that the, the, the still small voice, that, the, that, that, that their spirituality is not contained in the sound of a generator, but it is contained in the sound of, of, of maybe, you, you know, lifting hay bales. That it is contained in the sound of actually milking cows or sweeping, you know, a barn floor. That it is contained in the sound of singular work, gardening hoeing, singular sense of, of I am building carpentry, that that is much more the sound of, of their spirituality. Now, is that presumptuous of me? Maybe a, a little, but I'm not trying to communicate for them. I'm trying to allow you as the viewer access to them, access to an understanding. Great. So another one of those uh, PBS pieces uh, was uh, about Ford and, and building cars. When we try and t- talk about Henry Ford, we talk about, we can't help but talk about mass production. There are millions of things that we can talk about for, for Henry Ford, but from a sound perspective, when, when we look at the creation of Ford as a company, the creation of the Model T and the creation of mass production, industry, greater American understanding of industry. We have this sort of sense of rhythm and building, things coming together, the the idea of assembly, the idea of manufacture, the idea of of parts that form a greater whole. Can I tell this just with sound effects? Ka-clang, ka-clang, ka-clang. To some degree, yes. But can I tell it better when I can involve the music in it? Yes, because it's not just a technical ka-clang, ka-clang. There's an emotional aspect of it. This goes back to, to John Kuziak. John is the, the kind of composer and our relationship, the relationship between composer and sound designer and mixer is one where he gave us holds. What do you want to do with the music? Well, I got industry. I have things. I have mechanical things that come together. Can you give me some space in the music rhythm-wise so that I can be the rhythm section? Of course I can. And that became the sort of back and forth. So the examples from Henry Ford that we we have, one is, okay, here's factory, here's industry. And keep in mind, in furtherance of the earlier conversation, this is before sound recording for film. We're creating sounds for things that were never recorded. The technology didn't exist, or at least it's at the cusp of the technology existing, and it doesn't exist for these clips. So we're creating sounds to keep you looking around the frame, to finding details, to finding industry and growth and manufacture. We're creating an emotional aspect in the music, uh, which I would argue is very emotional. It's very buildy. It's very epic. It's very sort of opens to bigger sort of uh, almost the joy of, of building something bigger than yourself. And now we have the tie to mechanism, mechanical things coming together that are joining the music in this sort of rhythm section of, uh, you know, it's a sort of cacophony of stuff happening that makes your understanding of the moment bigger than just grainy black and white. And I'm not going to say that grainy black and white isn't beautiful. It's fantastic. But now it breathes. Now it has air. Now it has a sort of sense of place, geography. You understand that factory just a little deeper than 
just the images. So uh, you just worked on The Jinx, which was a huge project for HBO. And, and how did you get involved with it? I came into The Jinx several years ago through a film called Catfish. Um, I uh, was uh, uh, once removed friends with a picture editor named uh, uh, Zach Pontier. And, uh, and, and I'm sure I've mutilated it, Zach Pointer, Zach Stewart Pointer. Um, and uh, Zach and I had been talking back and forth, and I had met through him a gentleman, Mark Smerling. And they were uh, involved with a couple of young guys, um, one of whom was a, who went to the same college that I went to, an alma mater, you know, sort of thing. And they had sort of stumbled across a story that became the greater understanding of reality in the net. In this day and age, what I put on the net can become almost as real or fake as what is real. And that internet personality becomes a whole new thing. And it became this amazing exploration in interpersonal reality. What's real? What's real? If I say this is who I am, is that the logical and and the discovery of a a discon, discongruous connection, a a not a clear through point between two things, like a like wait a sec, what I thought was real is not at all real, and in this day and age, doesn't no longer has to be. Fascinating, unbelievably fun film to work on. Fantastic documentary to work on. Completely enjoyable. Well, Zach and I, the picture editor and I, sort of discovered that we really liked working together. So we worked on a couple features together. And I had stayed friends with Mark Smerling. And the executive producer was a gentleman, Andrew Jarecki. And I, we knew each other sort of once removed. He knew who I was through my work. I knew who he was through his work. And and there was a sort of, you know, I've always had a respect for, for what he's done. And I knew of his earlier films. And in the summer, a couple of years ago, this is the truth of the matter, they called, Zach called me up and said, hey, you know, what are you doing? Oh, this is what I'm working on this. I'm working on that. I'm working on this. I think Mark wants to talk to you. I think we got this thing. Andrew made a film about a guy. And I was like, yeah, all good things about the crazy guy Durst, this guy Durst. And I can't even definitively say crazy guy because I've never met him. But this guy, you know, Durst. And and Zach said, yeah, I think we're going to make a film about him. At which point I said, he's not going to... You're not going to interview him, are you? And I, a little bit of silence on the phone. Awkward, mo- awkward moment of silence. Yeah, yeah, we're going to interview him. I, I, the hook. I took the the worm, the hook, the leader, the lure. There's like, okay, I'm in. I'm in 100%. I don't care where it goes. I don't care what happens. He's a fascinating enough character who exhibits traits of some of the strangest emotional behavior this is going to be fun no matter what. So as they sort of found story and as the story sort of came together and as the sort of life of Robert Durst and the ability to explore it through an interview with him became, became happened, it sort of gelled into to the jinx. 
it it went through a couple different titles before it found its what it was. It went through a couple different incarnations of what it was. Is this going to be a feature? Is this going to be episodic feature? Is this going to certainly more story than you can tell in an hour and a half? What's it going to develop into? And as it sort of found itself, we sort of found a way of communicating. Um, you, you know, with Andrew, with Mark, with Zach, because they're very much a creative team, or my experience with them is as a very creative team that works together. It's sort of helmed, but sort of, you, you know, it's a team. And they sort of gave me a little leeway. And as we sort of discovered that this is not just going to be a, an interview with somebody who is un, has an unbelievable story, literally, but this is going to be something that explores, is his story real or not? Is what he's saying real or not? Because it's, there are many points when you start to wonder. He certainly has enough physiological manifestations of his psycho, psychological thing, issues, that you, as a viewer, almost from go, you start to wonder, what am I being told? And that makes you, of course, want to understand further, is this true or not true? Is this Robert's truth, which may be not the truth of reality day to day? Is Robert manipulating what he's presenting me and telling me something that might also not be true? Because certainly his family is very complicated as well. His history is very complicated as well. Is there a common understanding of his history that one could say this is what happened? Absolutely not. And so from a filmmaking point of view, and certainly from a sound point of view, the idea of discussing reality, the idea of discussing what he says and looking at reenactment and is this right, becomes the creative impetus for all sorts of sound design in that this is a recalled event by a guy who might not even be telling you the truth. How do we hear it? And that, to me, is always fascinating. Episode two of The Jinx involves uh, a little bit more of Robert's backstory, a little bit more of what m made him what he is. I think what is fascinating about him is he, the sense of family history and the sense of life history and the sense of what he comes from, that what made him what he is, is, is one of the f fundamentally fascinating things about him as a character that he is not just this guy who, in my opinion, is weird. He is this guy who has had a life that, in my opinion, is so out of this world weird that how could he be anything but this? Oh, he talks about, directly in an interview, how his mother passed away, how his mother transitioned from a living thing to an inanimate, to, to being dead and what it means for him looking back on it. Now, the story that he tells, I, I, me, as a, as a, as a, me as a very intelligent viewer, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know. I don't know if it's something that he's built for himself over the years. I don't know if 
And I can only imagine that watching your mother pass away would be psychologically traumatizing. If that traumatic vision has altered his understanding of reality. So with that in mind, how we approached creatively this event was how do we create a sense of anachronistic, viewing the past, looking back at the past? How do we make it sound of the past? And how do we create focus on different little moments? How do we you know, Robert obviously has issues with his father. How do we create a sense of foreboding to his dad? His, his, his footfalls are these creaky, carpeted, heavy house, distant little reverb moments. It's a little bit of a thunderclap. Is it, is it raining? No. But there's a little bit of thunder that gives us a sort of, this isn't going to end well. There's a sort of, uh, you know, there's a water phone, a particular instrument that makes a particular sound when, when bowed, that makes a sort of metallic reflection that is painful. It is not nice. It is not comfortable. So, you know, it's a, it's a, a particular chord, uh, a, a minor play, played on that particular instrument in a way that lets us know it's beautifully awful. It's beautifully upsetting. It's painterly hideous. It's Francis Bacon of sound. It's something that lets us know how painful this is going to be. It's a painful sound, but, but that is almost beautiful. And she falls, and, and, and there's a little bit of wind that plays, because I find it's a very realistic wind. It's, it's uh, you know, from a, a series of recordings that I made, an actual wind hitting actual things that, that ties, it's just enough of a bite of reality, of real. There's just a little bit of cloth movement that's real, that's completely untreated, that's just enough real so that we're constantly pulled between sublime and real, which I love the dance between the two. She falls and the sound is a, a, a pitch that decreases. So it's a, 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 what I would sort of Doppler as a, a falling sound. Her feet touch tree branches. And so there is a just enough of leaf of branch of touch, but with a little bit of reverb to give us some distance. And there's no impact because that's a conclusion. And I don't want to draw a conclusion. I don't know still if this is real or not. I still don't know if this is him, his imagination, our imagination, his dream, or literally black and white real. On the ground, we see her body. We see, you know, them covering her. And there's something soft and beautiful to that sheet sound that lets us know that this is, this is a finite thing. This is a finale to her life. There's a little bit of ambulance again, just a little bit of the rotating lights to give us a sort of sense of real. Um, the gurney and the ambulance door are both from an actual ambulance that I have access to. They're out of date, but it's okay. There's sort of a metallic gurney sound. And again, with a little bit of reverb to give us a sort of anachronistic, is this real or not? Is this history or not? Is this his understanding of history? And how can we as a viewer connect to it? So the sounds are sort of developed to let us connect to the story that he's telling, but also give us enough of a nod to let us know that, 
although we're connecting to his story, it's his story. You created this amazing work atmosphere out here in the woods with your dog and the fireplace over in the corner. You know, obviously this is very, very different from where you guys started working in Manhattan and the chaos of the city. Has that changed your work at all? I find my connection to my work, how I, you know, how do I dial in to creatively what I work on every day? I'm a little bit of a creature of habit. I'm a little bit of, uh, I like my comfort zone because I like to go outside of it. I like to actually break down the things, the rules. I love the idea of, <clears throat> I've established a world outside of the city, uh, outside of external influence. There's not too many people who call me or bug me. I turn the computer off, I turn the phone off, and I'm very of singular focus. And I find that by being able to get up at four in the morning and start working, which is what I do. <laughs> being able to make my cup of coffee a certain way and sit down and being able to sit at a console in an environment that's very much mine. I, I have given myself the uh, comfort and confidence to now tear apart every single rule that governs what happens creatively. If I'm comfortable, I'm comfortable exploring. I find that sometimes, you know, in the city, under time pressure, under monetary pressure, which in the film industry is certainly just about every day, that it's much harder to explore creatively because we've already focused ourselves. That by divorcing myself a little bit from the confines of the city, from the confines of, of you know, what I would argue just you know, concrete as far as the eye can see and sound that never goes away. There is never quiet. That by divorcing myself from those things, and this is my choice, there's certain energies in the city that are equally as valid in the opposite sense. For me, I can now break. I can now take apart. I can now start to construct. I can now hear out of context. And creatively, to me, one of the most important things that I do is hear out of context. Sound out of context makes connections that we weren't aware of. Those connections to, to story, to character, in ways that, the synapses that we didn't know, those are the things that make sound design beautiful. Those are the things that make cinema beautiful. So Colt, you've done a lot of work with you know, first-time filmmakers and, and young filmmakers. I'm really curious about the approach you take. I, I found that, you know, oftentimes uh, young filmmakers, they haven't really been educated about um, how powerful uh, a tool sound can be to help them tell their story. So how do you approach that with them? I find in uh, in in the work that I do, in sound work, in, in being a supervising sound editor, a re-recording mixer, a sound designer, often I'm introduced to new directors. Often I'm introduced to new stories and new ideas and new scripts, and that means new directors. New creativity involves first-time filmmakers. And, 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 that's, and that term in and of itself, first-time filmmaker, is usually ser seriously disingenuous. Because ultimately, when you get to me, even though this might be your first feature, you, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was Martha Marcy May Marlene Sean Durkin's maybe his first quote-unquote loose quotes feature? Yeah, maybe. 
but he's a very accomplished filmmaker and came to me as an accomplished filmmaker. I certainly didn't need to lead the way for creative use of sound. He had, you know, he was blossoming with ideas. What I find is that when I'm introduced to new filmmakers, that 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 we often talk about script, we often talk about story, we often talk about, hey, so what are you feeling sound-wise? And they'll say what I'm feeling. And from there, I, as somebody who does, you know, they've made one film in six years, and I've made 16 films in one year. So there's a little bit of an experience differential here. Does that mean that their point of view is less valid? No. In fact, it means their point of view is more valid because that's what I can, I can fill in the blanks. If they can say, oh, well, this is what I'm thinking in terms of sound, now I can say, oh, that's really fascinating. Why are you locked into, the, why, you know, why, why is that your focus? Or that's an awesome focus. Can I add this or that or this? And they go, ooh, wow, I didn't think about that. Like, well, I'm, I'm just trying to riff off of your understanding of story. Sometimes the new directors say, oh, what's your, did you interpret it differently? And I say, yeah, I was kind of sort of feeling this. I'm sort of feeling with this character, this girl, that I want to hear her internal monologue a little more. And some directors will say, oh, wait a sec, I never, how can I hear her internal monologue? Well, what if I take all the sounds that we're hearing away? What if I give her her own sound? What if I take her voice, her talking, and, and you know, through a couple knobs and buttons and some hammers and some nails, what if I give her just one frequency of her voice and slow it down so that we can lock into a pitch that we as viewers are comfortable with her? We know it's sort of somehow deep in the recesses of our brain. We know that's that's a pitch, a fundamental frequency of her of that character's. But if I take all the rest of the world out and we only hear that as music, that becomes her character's internal music. What about that? And and then the directors who I like the most go, "Holy shit, that's awesome! That's a totally different view of what this you know, the singular thing that I was thinking. That's a totally different view of it." And I think when they're comfortable knowing, and, and again, I can't speak for a director. I'm not a director. I've never wanted to be a director. I want to do this. This is what I do. When they know that you just want to help them tell their story, they're more comfortable letting you. They're more comfortable letting go. That building that comfort. And sometimes that comfort is pushing. Sometimes that comfort is sometimes that's challenging if they know that you care that much about what they think and i do that's why i choose to work with them they're okay with expanding it they're okay with you bringing to the table and i think that's a kind of maybe this sort of fundamental thing about first-time directors use the term the quotes loosely is that letting their voice come through and hearing their voice and knowing that you're listening. I'm listening to you. I'm listening to your storytelling ability. You're in this room with me. I trust you. you made it to hear. You don't make it to hear if I'm not going to trust you. That all of a sudden they're, they're okay with that. That it's not mutually, it's not exclusive. It's combined. It's, you know, a back and forth. I'm curious, has the, um, the approach to sound work for documentaries changed over the course of your career? Like, um, has the aesthetic changed? 
Yeah, I think the aesthetic has changed. Um, I think in the course of my career, the aesthetic for sound and documentary films has changed dramatically. Fortunately for me, the people who I feel have changed the aesthetic, I've been able to, I've, I've been working with them while it's happened. I'm a huge, ginormous fan of, of uh, Errol's filmmaking, uh, Errol Morris's filmmaking technique. I'm a bigger fan of what it's allowed the entire documentary canon of filmmakers, the entire documentary community to expand into. It, he, he, he allowed filmmakers to let go of, if I didn't film it, it didn't happen. He allowed filmmakers to let go of that and become, look, this is what we're talking about. Let's visualize it. And let's not just visualize it from a pure reenactment standpoint. Let's visualize it from a subconscious standpoint. Images that were dreamlike. Images that were, that had emotional content because they weren't entirely in focus and very literal. They were much more paintings in that singular things, singular moments or parts would be in focus and everything else would happen almost as, as a dream. And I love that interpretation of reality. Like if I, if I witness something, if I see something happen, if I see a car wreck happen, it doesn't play that way in my head. It doesn't play as if I videotaped it. Moments of it are what become in focus. Glass hitting the ground becomes what in focus. The crumple, the thump, the actual not urt crash, but punk, the actual impact itself and how quiet it sometimes is. That becomes what I focus on. The, the not even the sound of the cars crashing together, but the sound of glass just the sound of glass and, and an almost a wind chime tinkle. Oh, wait a sec. I don't even want to hear glass now. What if I just hear glass chimes? What if I just hear crystal chandelier moving in a wind? That becomes as powerful, if not more powerful. And I think Errol allowed us to do that. It certainly allowed me to. Wow. Well, that's amazing. Call, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today about creative sound design for documentaries. I'm a huge fan of your work and the Jinx and Catfish, and, and it's just a treat to be up here in the woods on a rainy day and talking with you about sound design for docs. So that's it. Uh, that's another uh, episode of Conversations with Sound Artists coming to you from the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. We'll see you next time.